Welcome to the Movie Planet Podcast. This week, we are starting the Die Hard franchise retrospective, where we talk about all five Die Hard movies. Uh, the next five weeks will be loaded with John McClane. It'll be me and JC talking about all five of these movies and how this series actually stacks up uh, as a franchise as a whole. So, we hope you enjoy the show. Here is Die Hard. With Joe. I wanted this to be professional, efficient, adult, cooperative. Not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. And JC. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture. This is John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. It's always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. Okay, so if you haven't seen the movie Die Hard, I would suggest stopping the podcast now. Go rent it or watch it. The unedited version. Don't watch the TNT slash TBS slash USA slash Spike slash FX version of it. Watch the unedited version. And then jump back in to listen to us talk about this film because we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie. So there is your warning. Let's get started. Talking about 1988's Die Hard, opened in the summer, July of uh, 1988. Uh, Die Hard starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia, Alexander Goodenough, Reginald Vell Johnson, Paul Gleason, Devereaux White, William Atherton, Clarence Gilliard, Hart Bachner, and James Shigeta as Joseph Takagi. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> yes. JC, was this a movie that you were looking forward to? Yes, yes, it was. Uh, again, uh, as soon as I got the or put the DVD in, I realized watching it that I had only ever seen this movie on TV. That surprised uh, me. Yeah, I, I was like, I know well, I was, not on TV, I, but on network TV. On There's network TV. Changes, changes. No, yeah, on on network TV, like the TNTs and the spikes and all that. Yeah. Um, and I know I've seen it many times. I, this is one of those movies I've probably seen it at least once a year, usually <laughs> around Christmas because it's on during Christmas time, but. Um, when Joe and I decided to do this, I realized I didn't have it in my movie library. Mm-hmm. Went out and bought it, put it in uh, the Blu-ray player, and I was like, okay. And I realized very quickly, I'm like, I've apparently only <laughs> ever seen the TV version, which got me even more excited because it felt like I was watching this movie for the first time. That's pretty cool. So so that was pretty awesome. I know that you know when you told me that, I, the first thing I thought of was you watching the movie, and then when it ended going, how come I never owned this movie before? I, I, I wonder if I never bought it just because if I ever wanted to see it, it would be on TV. Yeah. Or I'd seen it so many times at this point at that point that I was like, eh, I know what happens. I know mm-hmm. the gist of it. I personally try to revisit this movie once a year, usually around Christmas time. Christmas time, I have to watch Die Hard, and I have to, and I have to watch Gremlins. Those, I, I've never seen Gremlins the whole way through. Yeah. I have to watch both of those, and now I'm adding to the list, and I know you're going to hate this, Krampus. Krampus is a Christmas staple for me now. I have uh, to watch it at that time, too. Those, that, that's my- Merry Hanukkah. My non-Christmas movies, Christmas movies list. There, there you go. Uh, as a summer flick, it feels different. It does feel weird watching in the summer. Yeah. But then again, you're watching Christmas in LA, yeah. and there's no snow, so you kind of have this Christmas slash summer- but, vibe to it. But they use so many Christmas songs in the soundtrack oh, God, that yeah. you kind of have to watch it at Christmas. If you watch it during the summer like we did, it feels a bit Christmassy in July, but 
you you get the sense it's Christmas because they use like three or four complete Christmas songs. Like the characters are singing them out loud. It's on the radio. It's in the background. Yeah, it's just Christmas music the whole time. Could this have been the beginning of Christmas in July? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know the, gen- I, yeah, the genesis of that idea. Yeah, but when, when did Christmas in July start? This is. A, I mean, think about this. This is a Christmas movie released in the middle of summer. Yeah. Now there's some interesting little trivia here that I got down. Okay. Uh, first, it was directed by John McTiernan. His other notable credits: Predator, Okay, The Hunt for Red October, Die Hard with the Vengeance, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Interesting. Before I get there, though, July 1933, Camp Keystone, a girls' summer camp in North Carolina, was the first official historically uh, listed place to celebrate Christmas tree and a visit by Santa Claus in July. So we were off by 55 years. So 1933 at Camp Keystone in North Carolina. Well, you know, in the whole scheme of the world's history, that's not bad. We, that's we were close. Bad. Yeah, there you go. It was released in July of 1988. It cost $28 million to make. Oh, this had to have made bank. It made $140 million worldwide. That's $140 million. I was going to say, that's a lot in 1988. Yeah. I I feel like that's pretty good. Still not as high as I would have thought. You know what? Because because this feels like the beginning of what action movies are today. It's the beginning of the modern. The modern action action movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so that number still feels low to me. But again, it's 1988. Yeah. Uh, the Nakatomi Tower is actually the headquarters of 20th Century Fox. Is it really? <laughs> yes. Was it when the movie was made? It, they were building it at the time, and the company charged itself rent for the use of the then unfinished building. That's hilarious. <laughs> I guess they do they that as a... They financed themselves. I guess they did that as a tax write-off or something, yeah. <laughs> uh, director John McTiernan found it necessary to smash cut away from Hans Gruber's face whenever he fired a gun because Alan Rickman had an uncontrollable habit of flinching from the noise and muzzle flash. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> The scene where Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman meet up was unrehearsed. Oh, that's one of the best scenes in the movie. I know. Hands down. Uh, And he just kicks into an accent. Yeah, that's brilliant acting on Alan Rickman. So, wait, was it not rehearsed or was it ad lib? It was unrehearsed to create a greater feeling of spontaneity between the two actors. So So they had their lines, but they never met up to actually read them together. Okay, gotcha. Um, When John McClane runs through glass shards, he's got rubber feet on. Oh, well, that's at least good. He hobbited. He hobbited. Before, <laughs> oh, why did I laugh at that? I shouldn't have laughed at that. <laughs> you, you laughed a little. I did laugh at that. I shouldn't have. Uh, this is an interesting one. In a scene where Bruce Willis had to shoot under a small table, he suffered two-thirds hearing loss in his left ear. This was due to the extra loud blanks fired in a small, retractive space. Well, yeah, I was going to say, he should have been wearing earplugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when talking to Powell on the CB, uh, John McClane tells him they have missiles, automatic weapons, and enough plastic explosives to orbit Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger was originally considered for the role of McClane and had worked with John McTiernan and Joel Silver a year before on Predator, also from 20th Century Fox. Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis, who are now both known for making action movies with a dark humor, later became a good friends and worked on the Expendables movies together with Sylvester Stallone, who was also considered to play John McClane before Bruce Willis. See... I and I will say this: I don't think this movie is as good if you don't have Bruce Willis, because what's one of the other great things, and I know I'm getting ahead, is the dialogue. Yeah, like the way the dialogue is delivered, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's wouldn't have been dry humor; it would have come off as weird. Well, here and th- Sylvester Stallone would have like it would have been wa- like watching the Terminator or watching Rocky. This was an actor that truly owned the role. Yes. And nobody else could play him because here's the list of other candidates Al Pacino, 
No. Richard Gere. Oh, fuck me. Tom, that would have been awful. Tom Berenger. Nah, that one I can possibly see. Berenger, yeah, I could see Tom Berenger have do- doing it. Nick Nolte. No. Mel Gibson. Mm, maybe. Harrison Ford. No. <laughs> Bill Cosby. Oh, fuck me. Uh, when the producers heard about Bill Cosby, they said no because they thought the audiences might think it was a comedy. Yeah. You know, that was the only reason why they were worried about looking like a comedy. And to be honest with you, there was a lot of comedic moments in this movie. Do you know what? <laughs> I didn't know the Tom Berenger thing. Mel Gibson, yes, because I, he did Lethal Weapon so well. And Lethal Weapon is very similar to Die Hard in some respects. But he plays a crazy guy in Lethal Weapon. No, exactly. But I also think that he can also play very serious but dry humor. Like, actually, now that I think about it, I see a lot of similarities between characters Mel Gibson plays and characters Bruce Willis plays. So that probably would have been the closest. I'm intrigued by Tom Berenger because he's not known a whole lot. Mm -hmm. He's sort of seen as maybe a B-list actor. And I wonder... If he had done Die Hard, if he would be the Bruce Willis, if he would be the one that everybody knows about and gets so many great movies, because I think Tom Berenger is a pretty good actor, but what did Bruce Willis do before Die Hard? Moonlighting. Never seen it. It was the TV show he was on. No, yeah, I've never seen it. Which is interesting because, well, I'll get to, I'll get to that in a second, but he, during, the, during the filming of this movie, at night, he would go film Moonlighting. <laughs> That's funny. He was kind of like Michael J. Fox did with uh, Back to the Future, where he, he'd work on the movie family during the ties. day, do family ties at night. Yeah, okay. Uh, finally, this was Alan Rickman's first movie. I did know that. I did know it was Rickman's first movie. What a great way to start. Oh, it's a great way. To, God, I'm so sad that he's gone, but he was such a good actor. We lost a really great actor with him. Yeah, and we'll talk more about Alan Rickman in a few, but there's also one more thing I forgot. There is one more thing. Roger Ebert, and you will appreciate this, Okay, was one of the few critics to give this movie a negative review. Okay. The main reason he did, the main reason he gave us a, a negative review, because he hated the character of Chief Dwayne Robinson. Uh, I completely, uh, yeah. But that, that character is so not believable. Because of that character, that side character, it's the main reason he gave it a negative review. Yeah, I agree. I can't do that. I can't say a side character is going to ruin an entire movie for me. I also agree, which is why I still gave it the grade I gave it, but I almost knocked it down mm. because of the two characters that I'll talk about later that I absolutely hated. And he said and the I, character and was... And I honestly think those two characters, if you remove them from the movie, there is not another bad thing you can say about that movie. And I think... And I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to present a case for the chief, but I think you missed the point with the press guy because he wasn't a comedic character. He was, he was a reflection of what news was in 1988, where you had uh, Extra and Insider News and all those like news magazines that were like the National Enquirer. He was supposed to be that guy, you know, chasing the shit story. He wasn't a comedic point. I never laughed once when he was on the screen. He was, he was the character in Ghostbusters and a toll. Yeah, uh, you can definitely tell that actor yeah. is typecasted. He must have done a asshole really well. Now, do I agree with you that if you remove the deputy chief from the movie? Yes. It's a seamless movie still. Yeah. You still can. But I'm going to present in a perspective, and you don't have to agree with it, but a perspective later about his purpose in this movie. But we'll get to that. I think I know what you're going to say, and I already have a rebuttal. Cool. So other than that, here's the synopsis of the movie. On Christmas Eve, New York City police detective John McClane arrives in Los Angeles. He aims to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly, at the Christmas party of her employer. 
the fictional Nakatomi Corporation. McLean is driven to the party by Argyle, an, imp- an airport limousine driver. While McLean changes clothes, the party is disrupted by the arrival of Hans Gruber and his heavily armed terrorists, Carl, Franco, Tony, Theo, Alexander, Marco, Christoph, Eddie, Uli, Heinrich, Fritz, and James. The group seizes the tower and secures those inside as hostages, except for McLean, who manages to slip away. Gruber singles out Nakatomi executive Joseph Takagi and says he intends to teach the corporation a lesson for its greed. Away from the hostages, Gruber interrogates Takagi for the code to the building's vault. Gruber admits that they are using terrorism as a distraction while they attempt to steal $640 million in bearer bonds in the vault. Takagi refuses to cooperate and is murdered by Gruber. McLean, who has been secretly watching, accidentally gives himself away and is pursued by Tony. McLean manages to kill Tony, taking his weapon and radio, which he uses to contact the Los Angeles Police Department. Sergeant Al Powell is sent to investigate. Gruber sends Heinrich and Marco to stop McLean, who kills them both. Powell, having been greeted by Eddie, who poses as a concierge, finds nothing strange about the building. And as Powell turns to leave, McLean decides to drop Marco's corpse onto his patrol car. After being fired upon by the terrorists, Powell summons the LAPD, who surround the building. McLean takes Heinrich's bag containing C4 explosives and detonators. A SWAT team assaulting the building is driven off by gunfire from Uli and Eddie. James and Alexander use anti-tank missiles to knock out the SWAT Greyhound armored car, but before they can finish its destruction, they are killed when their building floor is blown up by C4 that McLean dropped down the elevator shaft. Holly's co-worker, Harry Ellis, attempts to mediate between Hans and McLean for the return of the detonators. McLean refuses to return them, causing Gruber to murder Ellis. While checking the explosives attached to the roof, Gruber is confronted by McLean. Gruber passes himself off as an escaped hostage and is given a gun by McLean. Gruber then attempts to shoot McLean, but finds that the gun is unloaded. Before McLean can act, Carl, Franco, and Fritz arrive. McLean kills Fritz and Franco, but is forced to flee, leaving the detonators behind. FBI agents arrive outside and take command of the police situation outside, ordering the building's power to be shut off. The loss of power as Gruber had anticipated, disables the vault's final lock. Gruber demands that a helicopter arrive on the roof for transport, and the FBI prepare to double-cross him by sending helicopter gunships to take down the terrorists, while accepting the death of some hostages. However, McLean discovers that Gruber's true intention is to detonate the explosives on the roof, to fake the deaths of his men and himself so they can escape with the bearer bonds, a plan that would also kill the hostages. Meanwhile, Gruber sees a news report by intrusive reporter Richard Thornburg that features McLean's children and deduces that McLean is Holly's husband. The criminals order the hostages to the roof, but Gruber takes Holly with him to use against McLean. McLean defeats Carl in a fight and heads to the roof. He kills Uli and sends the hostages back downstairs before the explosives detonate, destroying the roof and the FBI helicopter. Theo goes to the parking garage to retrieve their getaway vehicle, but is knocked unconscious by Argyle, who had been trapped in the garage during the siege. A weary McLean finds Holly with Gruber and his remaining men, and knocks Kristoff unconscious. McLean surrenders his machine gun to spare Holly, but then distracts Gruber and Eddie by laughing, allowing him to grab a concealed handgun, holding his last two bullets taped to his back. McLean shoots Gruber in the shoulder and then kills Eddie with his final shot. Gruber crashes through a window, and while he momentarily saves himself by grabbing Holly's watch, McLean removes it, and Gruber falls to his death. 
McLean and Holly are escorted from the building and meet Powell in person. Carl emerges from the building disguised as a hostage and attempts to shoot McLean, but is gunned down by Powell. Argyle crashes through the parking garage door in the limo. Thornburg arrives and attempts to interview McLean, but is punched by Holly. McLean and Holly are driven away by Argyle to the sweet sounds of Christmas music. The end. So there we go. JC, you've watched the movie. What did you think after watching this? This movie is brilliant and awesome. It's quotable. It's still relevant. And despite two major hiccups in the, this movie, because of characters, it still works over 30 years later. And it's funny but, because you're right. They're hiccups. This is just a great, great movie. I think this is the first movie you and I have done that we both agree is a great movie. We Yeah. And from the get-go, we didn't have to convince each or no. one or the other uh, why we liked it. This is just genuinely, I love this movie. Yeah. This is such a good movie. I personally, I, I, I had so much fun. I've watched this movie twice this week. Yeah, he, yeah. I watched it earlier this week, and then I watched it again last night. It is just the right amount of action, comedy, and plot, and it balances out perfectly. Yes, this is a true action-adventure movie. It is. It, yeah. it, you sit there, and you can look on any list, any list of the best action movies, and this movie is routinely in the top five to ten. Yeah. It's, it's, it's near, near perfect. Any action movie post-1988 has to tip its hat to Die Hard because this is the template for most of the Mission Impossible films, most of the even the newer James Bond, Pierce Brosnan films. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you you can draw a lot of correlation to what Die Hard did to these modern action movies, and that's just awesome. It's funny because nowadays you'll hear people say, "Oh, this is the Die Hard here" or a "Die Hard there." I mean, it's it's used as a reference yeah. when describing other movies. Yep. Best parts of this movie. Best parts for me was uh, first off the the opening dialogue, like uh, the dialogue in this movie. Across Joe, Joe made the comment to me before when I was talking about Ghostbusters, how how do you not find this quotable? And I'm like, yeah, I don't remember the quotes. This is a movie where I remember so many quotes. Come to the coast. Come to California. <laughs> make have a few laughs. Make make fists with your toes. Hold. It works. Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. I mean, <laughs> there's, yeah, the dialogue, but it's also, it's real dialogue. Like, it, it, when you listen to this movie, you don't get the sense, oh, this is an 80s movie because they're talking. No. P- take this dialogue, insert it into a movie today. I mean, other the only dialogue that doesn't work is when he's describing the limo because we don't have VHS stuff anymore and some <laughs> of that stuff. But other than that, you can literally take the dialogue, insert it into a movie today, and it works. It's just, this is what people would say. The guy would talk to himself. John McClane would talk to himself and be like, think, John, think. Like, yeah. why didn't you fucking shoot him, John? Well, because you'd be dead too, fucker. It's like, <laughs> that's what, like, that's great dialogue. I loved it. No, it's um, solid. I love the limo driver. Argyle. I, thought, I loved Argyle. I thought he was hilarious. <laughs> and Carl from Family Matters. Uh, Reginald S- Bell Johnson, S- S- uh, Sergeant Powell. Powell, <laughs> he, I loved him, and um, gr- the the scene with Gruber's fake panic attack is just great. When he first meets when he, when he first meets McLean, that's just money. And the other thing uh, I loved, and it's actually something I learned when learned uh, at some behind the scenes feature or something. Uh, Alan Rickman did not know his character was going to die by falling, <laughs> and they actually they thought he thought he was going to be shot, 
And so when they, like, whatever harness he was in during, when they were shooting that, and they let him loose, that look of fear is genuine because he did not know he was going to be released and dropped down the set or whatever they did. I think he dropped it like 60 or 70 feet or something. Oh, I didn't think. I thought it was like, like yeah. 10 feet or something. <laughs> but still, he did not know he was going to fall. So that look of sheer terror is a real look. And that's just to know that and then to see it on film is just, that's great. So, think, Joe, think, Joe, what are your best parts? Things you wouldn't do in an established Alan Rickman today. No, you would not do that today. <laughs> um, for me, you know, the computer hacker is one-liners. He shoots. He scores. They're super oh, cheesy. But even more importantly, and I think this is very civil rights-ish, is that this is 1988. You have an African-American computer hacker. Yeah. You, when's the last time you saw this in a movie? Before 88? You didn't. Even today. Yeah, that's true. And this guy, he, you, you buy it. Uh-huh. You buy, and he's awesome. Totally legit. Everything he says he's, is all subterfuge. He's also <laughs> the one person that that takes the mick out of Gruber. Yes, like he kind of puts Gruber in his place from time to time. I mean, the the other Germans will yell at him and disagree with him, but this guy says, "Dude, you fuck this up. It's your fault." You could say but, that he's the second smartest guy in the room. Yeah, you know. Let's see, uh, the, the head of the police, and uh, I, I know that he's a problem for you, and you'll God. get into that in the worst parts. God. But for me. You watch Powell, you know, and he's all in. He, he help out the guy, and you got Doofus McGee, the the deputy police chief, coming up, and he's going to take over, and he's Mister Contra- Contrarian. Everything's wrong. We don't know who this guy is or not, and he says certain the way that he delivers certain lines. You you almost can see Paul Gleason's having fun with this. The scene between McLean and Gruber when they meet up. And when Gruber reveals him right before they meet up and then he reveals himself to be the bad guy and the look on Bruce Willis's face when he tries to shoot him and the gun's not loaded. Oh, look at that. It's an unloaded gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great dialogue. God, there's so many quotable parts. In this there really movie. is. I mean, the best part is yippee Kaye motherfuckers in like the top 100 of like American film institutes quotable lines. And it's only said John McClane only says it once in the movie. Yeah. It's well, Gruber says it the other time. He yeah. goes, yippee motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah. Gruber, the way that his cadence goes, Alan Rickman's cadence in all this, I mean, he's almost as quotable as anybody else. Yeah, I uh, agree. I love Ellis. I think Ellis is the perfect image of a yuppie in 1988. Oh, yeah. And when he's trying to negotiate <laughs> on the phone, he's got that smart-ass look like, John, they're going to kill me. And he gives a look like, eh, I got him now. And then they actually kill him. I was like, yep. good for you. Don't pull any punches. And, and you see that coming from a mile away. Yeah. I mean, it's, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I say so that good. in class a lot. It's so good. Well, I've, <laughs> I've also uh, used quotes from Die Hard in class, and not the swearing, of course. I'm not okay. that kind of teacher. No, no, no. Um, That's just me. But... Uh, <laughs> I have used, let's go to California, have some laughs. And like <laughs> the students just look at me. Yeah. Like they just stare at you like, what? I'm like, yeah, never mind. It was funny for me. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> okay. The worst parts of the movie JC, kill the reporter and the chief. Go. Yeah. The, the worst parts <laughs> of the movie for me were the reporter and the chief. They are so stereotypical and so unrealistic that mm-hmm. in a movie where. And I think one of the things you you say are unrealistic uh, is unrealistic is the actual like heist and all that. And I actually I can see how that would would work. And if you tweak it a little bit, that would still work as as a heist today. Okay. 
But the reactions of the chief, the reactions of the reporter to me, and granted I was younger. In 1988 when this came out, I was five years old. So maybe I just didn't know enough about the world. But to me, l- looking at it as as a 2010 person, it's just bad. It's just stupid. It's archaic. It's so out of place and just stupid. Like, I can't even, like you say, it's funny. No, it's not funny to me. That's just stupidity. Um, they were They were the most unbelievable parts of me. For the film now, why the reporter? Uh, the reporter because you say it was like inside. the chief. The chief I can understand because you could, you could literally erase this guy from the thing. But 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 you say well you can erase the reporter because what does the reporter actually do? The reporter makes it a national news story. Well, you would get that anyway because of the FBI coming in. But that's the thing. Back then, you don't have the mass communications that we have here. You have people calling in. No, I I completely get that. Yeah, but. Have the reporter roll up on scene. Where the reporter lost it for me is when he goes after the kids. Well, that's the thing. Without that, you don't have Gruber finding out that Holly is his wife. You need that moment for him to put together that Holly is McLean's wife. You can do that with the photograph in the office. You, you, don't, I, you don't need the reporter going and threatening to call INS, which, uh, yeah, that even was like unbelievable to me because it's a cop's family. So, so why the hell? Why would the hell would a, the cops' family have an illegal immigrant working for them? That's a. I, I think that that's assuming that a cop would never break the law. A cop like John McClane? Yes, I am going to make that assumption. That and is at the cop's house. It's his wife. It's his wife's house. No, you're not going to pull the whole. Well, no, I am going to pull it no, out. I'm going to pull that out because it is a truth. No, it's not. It is. It's, it's not his house. Then just like it's then it's not my version of truth. Just like my version is a cop or a cop's family wouldn't hire an illegal immigrant in my mind's truths. You can have it be that in your mind that they could do this. But to me, that was bullshit. That's just lazy storytelling and bad storytelling, in my opinion. So that whole thing with him going to get the kids to move it forward, if you needed Gruber to find out she was his wife, have him have the picture suddenly fall down or have him just start cleaning up and pick up the picture. Then he will still figure it out. But you don't and all because here's the other unbelievable thing about it. Stop it, saying unbelievable because what you're saying now is that anybody who does buy into this is a moron. And it's not true. It is believable. It's just not believable from your perspective. The other thing that was unbelievable for me as I was watching this movie is just prior to that scene where the reporter is going to go get the kids, all of a sudden a TV is brought in to Gruber because they're carrying a little mini TV around just yeah. haphazardly. So, no, that that was... The that bi- part I agree with. Yeah. The, the biggest <laughs> unbelievable, and if the sole reason for the reporter is to move the plot along, there were other ways to do it easier that were more believable without... And granted, I may have a bias because that actor p- just plays roles. Yeah, he's a little and, weasel. And as soon as <laughs> as soon as I see him on the screen, I'm instantly like, "Why does he have screen time?" And Which I I don't like to say that about other human beings because they're working, they're trying to make money. But he is just one of those characters. And I know we just saw Ghostbusters, but when you see him on screen, you're like. Let him not be a bad guy because he's so typecasted that as soon as you see him, mm-hmm. you instantly know that storyline. And if you instantly know that storyline, cut it out. Just don't use it. Okay. Uh, All else? right. So 
the, I mean, those those are my those are my bad things. I think it, I think you put up legitimate arguments there as to yeah. why you didn't like those characters, and I think that people need to take that into account out there. That these are characters that if yeah, if you if you believe in what JC's saying that you could remove these people and the story would still work, then it excellent. would be fantastic. Yes. It, okay. For me, is it realistic? No, not in 2016. But this is a period piece of the 80s now. And mm-hmm. we have to remember, we have to take that into account. We have to take into account that in the 80s, cops could carry a gun on an airplane. They can still today. Marshals can. Marshals can, yeah. And so can He's cops. not a marshal. It has, it has to be in their carry-on luggage. But the, as, long as, they, as long as they say they have the gun. Okay, yeah. yeah. You're right. They can't have the holster sitting. Okay, that's yeah. being nitpicky, I uh, think. As far that's as the, not nitpicky. <laughs> these are things that a 2016 audience would notice immediately. All right, all right. Uh, the limo, you know, talking about the stuff in the limo. It's the 1980s. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. It is. You know, what are you going to say? That he's not going to play Christmas and Hollis either and today? Well, of course he is. You know, yeah. it's 1980s. Yep. Uh, Coke in the office. The guy's never snoring Coke in the office. You know, and nobody's saying anything. It's the 1980s, apparently. This is what we saw from all of our 1980s office movies, if you will. There was always a Christmas party. There was always drugs and sex going on. And all these 1980s business off Christmas yeah, movies. They yeah. all, I've never, that, is, that is a staple of the 80s. I have yet to go to a Christmas party at a business. And I've worked for a lot of businesses that had these Christmas parties like this. That's true. I, you, you must have gotten gypped, dude. I feel really bad that I missed out on all this good loving. And, and, and drug use? You, you, no, nah, I was never a drug person. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. And, yes. For me, he mentioned earlier, the heist. Okay. There's a lot of moving parts that have to go together to make this heist work. It is a bit convoluted at time. And I say at time because I think relying on the FBI to shut everything down, the power and everything, that's a leap of faith for him. But it, the gamble works. And yeah. I think this is the kind of character who would gamble on something like that. But what was his backup plan? Yeah, that's true. You know, most of the sites that you see now have corrected that. They usually have a backup, a plan B as to what's going to happen. But this one he doesn't. And, but for some reason, because it's the first movie that we're seeing that's of this ilk, we buy into it because it's fun. And and again, it was the first to really do a complicated plan. Yeah. Like a complicated heist plan outside of take people, we want money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, more the more I think about it, you're right. The William Atherton character, the, the press reporter... I can see only one reason to have him in the movie at this point, and that is, well, two reasons. One, because I feel that it pushes Holly into the light of Hans Gruber as to who she is, but also, he's in Die Hard 2. Oh, and I haven't seen Die Hard Yes, he has Die Hard 2, and he has, ever since then, filed a restraining order against uh, Holly McLean after she knocks the motherfucker out at the end of the movie, which is fantastic. <laughs> I did love that. Yeah, well, that's that was the audience saying, "Yeah, there you go, kill the guy, you know, knock him out." All the guys who are a pain in the ass get their comeuppance in this. They all do. I mean, even even your deputy chief. Once the FBI gets there, he's just another little kid on the sidelines. Fuck you, you don't know what you're talking about. We're the Johnson brother. No, I, this is Debbie, this is FBI agent Johnson. This and is special, special agent Johnson. Johnson no, no relation. relation. Yeah, <laughs> but. But I think you you made a point earlier that that the police chief is is needed to sort of to show the ineptitude and all this stuff. But I think if you get rid of the chief, the FBI can show that the FBI can show that this is a big deal and all this stuff mm-hmm. and their lack of talking and wanting to follow the playbook. I mean, that shows the stupidity of law enforcement at times in wanting to stick to to their 
SOPs. Protocols? Uh, standard operating procedures. Okay. That's what I was looking for. So you don't need a moronic, stupid, unrealistic chief to get that across. You can get that from the FBI agents. That's why I think the chief is just a worthless character. Because he's if he's supposed to be funny, it doesn't come off as funny. And if he's supposed to show ineptitude, that makes the police look very, very bad. Because I you I can't believe that a chief would actually talk to a, a officer like that, especially the officer that was first on scene. Usually the officer that's first on scene is Please give me everything you know. Tell me everything you know about what's going on. Right. And the chief shows up and says, yeah, we got this now, buddy. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Not realistic at all. That's just pure bad storytelling. And for me, when I look at it, I think to myself, the the chief only knows, the chief, deputy chief only knows what he knows on the ground. So you ask the guy that was there first. He should have gone to Sergeant Powell and said, tell me everything you know. Does he, he fills a role that was missing in Ghostbusters 1984. I'm, I'm intrigued where you're going with this because I have no idea where you're going. In Ghostbusters 84, you said one of your biggest problems yeah. was the 100% buy-in of these characters. Yes. This guy is not the 100% buy-in. He is not buying into Bruce Willis. And this is, the, this is why I mentioned earlier, I was like, I think I've got something that I want to throw at you just to think about. You don't have to agree with it, but... We're all, you know, Powell, the police, we're all rooting for you up there. We're all got you back. Not everybody. One person doesn't. And unfortunately, he's the one in charge, at least for the time being, until the FBI gets there. And you need that contradictory, uh, contrarian attitude on the ground. The, we're going to do things by the book. And you're right. You listen to the first responder. He's got all the details. But he has a right to be skeptical about hunches. I think he's a cop. What's your proof? It's just a hunch. That's, if, if you're trying to get through the facts, I don't want to make excuses for this guy because he's a bumbling idiot. But he's a bumbling idiot because you know what Bruce Willis is doing on the inside. And that's where I agree with you. I, I do think you need a, a naysayer character. And if that was the role the chief was supposed to be playing, then I agree with it. And I agree that if that's what they were trying to do, that makes sense. That's not how the character comes off to me. Because we know Bruce Willis. We know what he's doing. The character comes off to me as a bumbling idiot because of how he handles the beginning. I think, okay. I think if you make this little change, the, the character works flawlessly with everything you just said. Okay. And he rolls up and he says to Sergeant Powell, what happened? He gets all of the information from Sergeant Powell, everything Sergeant Powell has to give. If he does that, then the skepticism is more believable. I love it. We agree. I I, I think if, if he does that, then the chief doesn't come off as an asshole who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Then he comes off as that skeptic. I like that. But because he doesn't do anything with Powell's character other than be an asshole, Mm -hmm. he doesn't appear as a skeptic. He appears as a moron and a bumbling idiot that has never been on a hostage scene in his life. And if you want a skeptic character, don't have it be the chief of police. Have it be the negotiator. Yeah. Like, there wasn't a hostage negotiator. No, there wasn't. wasn't Because... Because a hostage negotiator would come in, talk to the first or the first on scene, get all the information, and then they could be like, "I get what you're saying. He may be a cop. I need to treat this as an unknown entity." And then that's so much more believable as a skeptic. 
Yeah, because he placed the hostage negotiator too at some point when he yeah. asked, "What do you want?" And Hans Gruber's sitting there with his feet on the desk, and he goes, "Uh, the what, what was the last one?" Yeah, he just, I read about him in Time Magazine. The, I don't know who they are. The, the Asian Dawn, the nine people from Asian Dawn. <laughs> what if? And let's rewrite this movie for a second. What if they you didn't know who Bruce Willis was, and it's not revealed until at the very end that he's a cop, and you have the, then the audience has to sit there and go, "What is he? Is he a cop? Is he not a cop?" Would that legitimize his character to a point? Not completely, but to a the, point? The Chiefs, yes. Yeah. Because then you're going on that journey with them. But then is the movie about legitimizing the Chief? When yeah, you you're can, right. When you can legitimize the Chief, literally, the mistake they made, have the Chief talk to Powell. If yeah. the Chief had talked to Powell, all of my complaints about the Chief would be null and void. Yeah. Because the, and you can even keep the dialogue the same. It's that little fuck up. Mm-hmm. That's what makes the chief wholly unbelievable is how he treats Powell. You, you don't need that conflict. Well, what did Powell you, know? What did Powell offer him when he got on the scene? Because he just said, we got a guy up there. You're right. And then, but so he gets all the information from Powell all scene. But who is the guy talking to? The guy is talking when he's like, don't talk to Powell, talk to me. What the f- Negotiation 101. You get as much information from inside the building. Who the f- cares where the source yeah. is? Yeah. Well, if he's only talking to Powell, then let him talk to like that's all of that was just handled so poorly. I'm like, I can't believe that people in the 1980s thought this is actually how negotiations went down. And if we got anybody out there in law enforcement that wants to ring in on this one, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, because maybe we do have it totally wrong. But that was that was my biggest like pet peeve was, I think, was just that yeah i have no issue with your pet peeves whatsoever i think you've got legitimate ones I, I i who's the audience for this movie this is definitely a movie for those who love action okay. if, if you say you love action movies you need to see this but again and i feel like i've been saying this a lot lately with some of these movies i think this is a must see i i and i think this isn't like ghostbusters where you need to see it once and then you've uh, achieved uh movie making uh check marks but I think this is a movie you need to see it at least once a year. Like this is just a good movie. Yeah. Like remind yourself of the and for the, for people like my son who didn't live in the eighties, I think they need to see this movie just to just for even a little bit of nostalgia or uh, historiography of what was life like back then and everything. And I'll let him know that the chief was a moron because of said <laughs> reasons. Um, but but uh, this is a movie that all should see. Make it make it make it a once a year film. Yeah. This is a guy's movie. The guy flick. That's what it is. If there's chick flicks out there, yeah, this is it, a guy flick. I was going to say, I, I, I'm, I didn't, I, I understand what you're saying there, but if there are chick flicks, this is a guy flick. Yeah. That doesn't if, mean that yeah. girls can't appreciate this movie. No, girl, it, girls really could. Yeah. Uh, My wife liked this movie. It, it's probably one of the best action movies of all time. Easily. It's essential to any film student who wants to see how a good action movie is to be directed. Yep. And, and it pulled so much magic from a script that was largely unwritten. I mean, they had ideas written down, but they had to write it on the fly. Okay. Didn't uh, know that. Yeah. It's, I, I look at this movie, and it's, again, it's a classic in my eyes. It, it's going to be hard to replace if, it, if we decide it goes in the Pantheon. It's a movie that is a, it, there's a reason why it's on top 10 lists every year since 1988. Yep. Um, I, and I don't believe it's for nostalgia's sake. And I think nostalgia has a bad place in film history. And it puts films that were once great, but have been surpassed since in, yeah. a, in a higher light than they should be. Yeah, I understand. Um, so what's your report card? All what, right. What's the, what's the grade? <clears throat> I have to give this an A. I, in the action g- adventure genre, this is an A. Uh, it's near perfect. 
It's, I think it's as near perfect an action movie as you can get. There might be one or two you can argue ahead of it, but it's hard-pressed to find one. I almost gave this an A- minus because of the chief and the reporter, but the yeah. more I thought about it, because you, because you can literally take those characters and remove them, and the movie would still be great... With that being the case, it, it's a solid day. I don't, I don't want people to to not see this movie because of those two. A, they're not on the screen that much. No. So, so that's not a reason. So this is another solid A for me. This one belongs in the Pantheon. So for action adventure, and also because it now has taught so much to later great action movies that I'm sure we'll discuss later, it yeah. needs to be in the Pantheon. So this is a solid A for me. This is a must. So another movie to add to the Pantheon. We inducted into the action-adventure Pantheon. That means that it is a must-watch for anybody out there. Stop what you're doing right now. Get your ass to a blockbuster. They don't, they don't exist, exist anymore. anymore. <laughs> and uh, rent the box. VHS tape of uh, Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to, the, talk to the vendor there as to what other movies he likes. Take it home. Enjoy it with the family. Uh, try to explain to your kid why, tapes why and- Hans Gruber from Germany has an English accent. Go with that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but check it out. It's amazing. It, it's a good movie. Yes. That's all I got time for today, Movie Planeteers. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to pass the word on to your friends about the show. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and help the show get on its feet with a four or five star review. Tweet with any questions, comments, theories, and I'll try to fit them into the show next time we're on the air. Send those tweets to at movieplanetpod and like us on Facebook and Instagram using the links in the show notes. Special thanks to Twisterium and Sound J Music for providing our intro music and our ending music. Thanks for listening, and happy movie watching. <laughs>